welcome to Parlando, a new podcast for Classical Voice North America. I'm Vivian Schweitzer, and I'll be interviewing some of the most interesting musicians of our time. Artists with decisive views about the evolving role of classical music and opera in the 21st century. As my first guest, I'm excited to have Daniel Bernard Rumain, the violinist, teacher, and composer known as DBR. He's also an outspoken activist, and many of his works examine important social justice issues. During the last few years, DBR has been lobbying arts institutions to become more equitable and inclusive. He's on the board of organizations including the League of American Orchestras, and we'll hear about the 10-20-30 pledge that he hopes will foster equity in the music world. has written pieces for solo instrument, chamber ensemble, orchestra, and voice. Stylistically omnivorous and alluring compositions that blend electronic and African-American musical influences, among others. He's collaborated with Lady Gaga and Philip Glass, who's one of his musical inspirations. You just heard some of DBR's beautiful violin solo number four, and we'll hear more of his music later in the show. All excerpts that you'll hear are performed, produced, and recorded by DBR himself. Daniel, welcome to the show. We've just experienced such upheaval on so many fronts, and I'm curious, how would you have defined your role as an artist pre-pandemic and before the murder of George Floyd? And how has that changed since? I think self-definition is equity. So I'm, I'm 50 years old. I've been referred to as a Black composer, Afro-American composer, American composer. Um, uh, probably about 30 years ago, I was very clear about describing myself as a Black Haitian-American composer. And I've used that now, yeah, I've been close to 30 years, 25, 30 years. So much so that if you Google search Black uh, Haitian-American composer, I come up. Now, what's interesting is up until about a few months ago, if you Google search a Haitian-American composer, I would come up first. No longer. Natalie Yoakum does, the great composer, flutist, and artist. And I love that. And the reason I, I always talk about this to contributors, students, it's very important, actually, that you're clear about not only what you do, but the names and the words that you use to surround it and to define it. You know, Bill T. Jones and I, the great dancer choreographer, we probably differ on this, and I can understand why. I, my understanding is that to him, being referred to as a black composer or a black choreographer limits the conversation. I guess we'll have to start talk to, start talking about BT and AT before Trump, after Trump. Before Trump, I was a black Haitian American composer. After Trump, I'm still a black Haitian American composer. What has changed um, is that uh, in my titles now, composer, educator, violinist, performer, father, activist. And I think that's what's changed the most is that um, I've, it's a full embrace of activism in a very pointed and system and systematic way. I followed your activism on social media and seen you urging a lot of organizations to take uh, concrete steps. Are you planning to do anything differently in 2021 as an activist? I want to be more conversational. I want to have the hand open now. 
much more. I want to observe more, listen more. This is important. Thank you for inviting me to this conversation. More conversations. I think I want to be very careful about my rhetoric. Um, at the same time, I think that is I want to be persistent. I think now we're in an age of positivity, sure, but also we, I think persistence. And part of that will be what I call is a, a moral amnesia has already set in. We're forgetting. We're forgetting. Our institutions are forgetting. And I understand. I understand that there's this false notion of a false choice between social justice and institutional life, you know, between social justice and philanthropy or new philanthropic sources, between social justice and just keeping the doors open, you know, remaining solvent. That's a false choice. So part of what I'm wanting to educate art leaders on and our field on is that we're all involved actually in one thing. It's public health. I mean, Dr. Anthony Fauci has made that clear, but, but it's, it's time for us as artists to understand that let's for a moment table all the things that we can't do and all the fears that we have. What's most important? Who are we truly protecting and serving? It's our communities. And if we forward and lead with that conversation, and we understand that, yes, new philanthropic sources can actually help fund social justice programs that can actually help you keep your doors open, right? That artists, and particularly artists of color, should help you as an arts administrator, not just what's on your stage, but what's in your books, right? Um, that I hope the Biden administration, I hope, maybe Kamala will do it. We need someone in the cabinet uh, who's uh, uh, consumed and there as, the, as an arts leader. Culture secretary would be great. Uh, that's right. Exactly right. Right. So, you know, if these things can happen, even if they can't happen on the federal level, there's nothing stopping it happening on a local level. That's a really good point about the importance of targeting the local level as much as the top level, because I think, of course, so much happens on a grassroots level uh, and then works its way up instead of the other way around. And it's also interesting that you mentioned being more conversational. Because it definitely seems that in the past few years, we've really regressed in terms of being able to have a civil conversation in public with people that we might vehemently disagree with. And that, of course, is manifest on every level from day-to-day -day conversations to social media, uh, to our politicians, you know, perhaps most of all to our politicians. There was a moment in the inauguration, help me remember this correctly, where you had Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama outside, I can't remember where, and uh, they're in a conversation. You know, you could tell they had been posed and it was edited, but it was kind of graceful and charming, but also kind of amazing, right? That three former presidents, all who had served two terms, were engaged in this kind of um, casual back and forth. And it was clear to me that Obama, maybe it's, it's its age, maybe I'm biased, it was clear to me out of the three of them, he had a way with words and he was able to kind of bring the other two. And by the way, let's forget it, Clinton also has his way with words, but he was able to really make the conversation in some ways. It seemed to me he was the leader of it in a way. But more than that, I kept thinking there was one president missing and part of me wanted him there. You know, part of me wanted him there because 
as clumsy as maybe his words would have been, I think it would have helped all of us have these hard and vital and necessary conversations. My older sister loves Trump. Well, you know, we all have right <laughs> relatives like this in our family, and it is a devotion. She, you know, I, I say to her that if Obama did the things that Trump did, I would not support him. And my sister's response is, ah, because you don't love him. Her response is, ah, you don't understand marriage. She talks about Trump as another marriage. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because for her, it's not that she's excusing the rhetoric or the words or the policy. She's saying, well, if you really love someone, you're devoted to them. I say that's cultish, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? But she calls it love. That's the word. So probably another conversation, but I thought that the trio of presidents ultimately will be better served by a quartet and hopefully quintet of presidents. And of course, what also went to my mind was there's someone missing from that conversation. And I hope Vivian, you and I live to see uh, uh, a sextet of, of presidents where one is a woman. Yes, I certainly hope we both live to see a woman president. And in addition to the very welcome change in the White House with Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, there's of course been a lot of introspection in the arts world following the social justice protests of 2020. You're on the boards of a few arts institutions. So do you feel that administrators and stakeholders are ready to embrace change? And what specific advice do you give to those who want to implement a real plan of action? There's a life before George Floyd's lynching. And there's and it's not just about George Floyd. It's just that, you know, like a lot of things in culture, particularly American culture, it was captured. It was witnessed. It was passed around, talked about, experienced, both in real time and thereafter. You know, we're, we're privileged, you and I, Vivian, because I think that artists and art administrators and people in our field are generally moral, are generally good, and are generally wanting to help and understand. At the same time, there are two types of people in, in every industry, but particularly to ours, who don't want to change. Not that they're racist. They like things the way that they are. And you also have people who are who would like to change, but don't know how. They don't know how. I can't get into the percentage of this. Who can say? But what I do know is um, I'm now also, as much as I'm wanting to observe and be conversational, I do want to be an, an instrument of change. And by that, I mean, well, what does it look like? Um, I've started to talk about a policy that I've referred to as 10, 20, 30. Can you make a 10-year commitment, dedicate 20% of your budget, dedicate 30% of your programming to BIPOC people? So that type of pledge, clean, elegant, (laughs) ready, is something that we're going to start rolling out at APAP. It's something that I hope happens at the League of American Orchestras. That's a much harder conversation I know maybe some of your listeners are thinking, wait a minute, they they can't do that. That seems low to me. Oh, 30% of your programming in the orchestral world to BIPOC people, very, very difficult. Um, But 10, 20, 30, which, by the way, I hope one day we get to 50, 50, 50, right? It should just be 50, 50. But incrementally speaking, I think a 10, 20, 30 pledge, that's change. 
That's a policy change. And if and when, when I shouldn't say if, when APAP rolls this out, and if the league can commit to this, that's change. has explored issues of race and inequality in a number of his works, including a piece for chamber ensemble called We Shall Not Be Moved, which was widely praised after it premiered in 2017 at Opera Philadelphia. It's a compositionally omnivorous piece with a libretto by Mark Bamuti-Joseph, who also collaborated with DBR in a work for the Philadelphia Boys Choir that was inspired by stories of incarcerated Black teenagers. More recently, DBR wrote a piece called I Have Nothing to Do Except Love, which is a powerful tribute to his mother's experience with dementia. This work is one of 13 mini-operas, each about five minutes long, by 13 different composers. The pieces are all part of an umbrella work called Modulation, which was shown at the recent Prototype Festival. Modulation is available for viewing until April, and I highly recommend it. Um, I found it to be digital opera at its best, and it's something that the Prototype Festival commissioned when, of course, their regular season couldn't happen. DBR is now working on an opera for the Lyric Opera of Chicago, a 45-minute piece that will be programmed with works by John Luther Adams and Caroline Shaw. The librettist is the actress and playwright Anna DeVere Smith, who had roles in Nurse Jackie in The West Wing. DBR describes her as generous and knowledgeable and so kind. So Daniel, what excites you most about this collaboration with Miss Smith? A trained actor, a truly trained and talented actor is a hell of a thing, excuse my language, because it's in the voice, Mm. right? And even in the interview, she was talking about something or another and she was demonstrating and her voice changed. Just a different person, you know, and of course, in her work, which is oftentimes oftentimes uh, based on uh, kind of transcribing an interview where she embodies and intones the person, it's just really riveting to me to see that and to be able to just talk to her about it and to have her do a libretto for what's going to be a full orchestra, a full chorus. We'll see. Can you imagine? That still scares me. I can't get out of my head that they're saying upwards of 100 people singing. And of course, I want to do something that honors Chicago the best parts of it and, and the troubled parts of it. I was born in Skokie and I grew up uh, for a few years in, in Park Forest and Hyde Park and like that. But, you know, like a lot of American cities, Chicago has tough parts to it. And I don't want this opera to forget about that. Well, I can't wait to see it. And Chicago is actually one of my favorite cities. So I'm always excited to have another uh, another very good reason to go out there. Um, And more broadly speaking, uh, how do you define opera's role in the 21st century? And what would you like to see more of? The role of opera, I think, at its best is to do two things. One of which is something it's always done, is to tell stories. 
to tell stories in a magical way, to turn the most mundane into the most magical. That's, that's probably the most important thing opera can and should continue to do. The second thing is what opera needs to do, and in some cases won't, and it is to, to be purposeful and invest and be honest and embrace and envelop and promote and procure and persist in who is telling those stories and who should be people who look like me, who should be people who are um, non-cis, who should be people who are disabled or have physical limitations or abilities and or inabilities, who should be all of the voices at opera still in some ways refuses to acknowledge and see. If opera can do those two things, then opera truly will be, well, monumentally magical. indeed in any theatrical arts, who can tell whose stories? Does a creator have to have lived experience to authentically portray a character very different from themselves? Or do you believe that anyone who is an empathetic storyteller can, you know, imagine what it's like and put some put themselves in someone else's shoes? I think for me, it always comes down to um, who are the artists involved, right? And, and who do you trust? Getting beyond, my, you know, my own opinion, who do you trust? And I think there are some artists who have earned, as an audience, our trust. And uh, I think sometimes it comes down to the authenticity of not necessarily those artists literally inhabiting those roles, but understanding the roles and understanding how to sometimes translate the story or the perspective into something that is honorable. This is kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, but I think sometimes what what it feels like is that there's a lack of understanding or a lack of trust. I have no problem with white people doing black music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is my, my, my terrain. I have no problem with white poets speaking to the black experience. Some do it better than others. Um, but uh, But I also understand that sometimes – it hurts because you, you, you feel like you feel violated and you feel like there are other people who can actually tell this same story better and from a place of a lived experience, from a place of authenticity. So you're asking a very complicated question, which is a rich question. It's one we've all experienced. Certainly I have. In what ways have you experienced that? Um, I'll give you one really quick example. I went to see 12 Years a Slave years ago, the great movie by uh, Steve McQueen, the black theater director uh, and um, filmmaker. And I'm sitting there, I'm ready. I had read the book, ready to see this, and the credits are rolling. Music by Hans Zimmer. 
I said, what? You know, and as a composer, I'm, I'm always on the hunt. If there's a black film, okay, who, who's doing the music? You know, right? This is speaking to what? Because I feel like if you're, you know, if it's a black film, it has to be a black composer, okay? Uh, but Hans Zimmer, and, and I trust Steve McQueen. So I'm sitting there and I'm already, now I'm listening to the music. The credits are rolling. Okay, let me, you know, and I, I've got it on my shoulder. It's hard for me to focus on the film. But of course the film begins. And then there's just one scene. I can remember it. It's an immediate hard cut to um, a steamboat and the big propellers moving and, you know, and there's this sound. And it's it's incredible. It's kind of a non-scene, but it's an important scene, an important sound. And I'm listening to it and it sounds like a baritone sax, but it's been all that. And in that moment, Vivian, Vivian, I was like, okay, you know what? You know what? That's great. <laughs> like, that's a great moment. Because that sax was speaking to a scream. It was speaking to the the sound of maybe being kidnapped and whipped and beaten and um, taken, victimized. Like, I got it. And then it didn't matter. White German guy didn't matter. Like, I got it. recently composed the soundtrack for a film about Alvin Ailey by the award-winning documentary filmmaker Jamila Wignot, which just premiered at the 2021 Sundance Festival. Wignot previously directed the PBS miniseries called African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross. Daniel, tell me about your experience working on this film. It sounds like a really exciting project. It was incredible to see a young Alvin Ailey, 24 years old, in full color, and then to kind of trace his life. A young boy from Texas, four years old, his earliest memory, can you imagine four years old, next to his mother, picking cotton. What kind of sound world were you hoping to create for the film? Uh, Jamil, yeah, Jamil and I talked a lot about it. We centered on the sound of Texas, the sound of New York City in the 1950s, the sound of a distinguished Kennedy Center award-winning artist. That's how the film begins, by the way. What's the sound of that? So um, I came up with uh, what I called Mr. Ailey's theme. You know, in the dance world, you refer to somebody like uh, Mr. Mr. Ailey, Mr. Jones, Mr. Mitchell, Arthur Mitchell, Dance Theater of Harlem, Mr. Uh, Miss Lang. I played for the great Pearl Lang at Martha Graham Dance Center. That was my first job in New York City, as a matter of fact, 1997, January 1st, 1997. So Mr. Ailey's theme was a way uh, throughout the film to kind of uh, almost like a, a light motif to trace him. And that theme is we, you hear it as a young boy, as a young man, as an older man, and as a man who was going through problems and suffering with his own, well, with his own, um, oh, we all have demons. But the film really is lovely. It's important. It's, it's beautiful, but it's also important because it's, it's the story of an American who started something that continues well beyond him, and he knew it. And that's what's so beautiful, too. And he left the company to the great Judith Jamison, Miss Jamison, who I've had the pleasure of playing for and working with. And there's something really powerful about that, right? Long before Kamala Harris, there was Judith Jamison. 
leading what is in many ways probably one of the most important modern dance companies in the world. In addition to his work as a composer, violinist, and activist, Daniel is also an educator. He's institute professor and professor of practice at Arizona State University. He's trying to change the typical professor-student dynamic in the classroom. So Daniel, tell me, how do you go about changing that balance in the classroom? I don't refer to students as students. I use the word contributor. We're all contributors to a classroom in a world of ideas. That's my way to start to, even in the syllabus, get to a place of equity in the conversation. But I certainly have seen that, sure. In the last four to five years, I have had students in my class who speak like Trump to me, who speak like Kellyanne Conway to me, who use the same rhetoric and words, alternative facts or alternate facts. I think she said uh, alternate facts. I think 2020, I was all about confrontation. You know, I'm very confrontational. I think you know that about me. I think in 2021, and I've got a son, I think you can understand this too. I got to be much more conversational. I do. So I'll, I'll say it here. I'll say it here. My rhetoric matters. Our rhetoric matters. It's a choice. And I want to be more conversational. Daniel, I totally agree with you. Our rhetoric really does matter. And I think that's a great motto for us all going forward in 2021. So thanks again for this great conversation. And to anyone tuning in, thanks for listening. Um, We'll be back soon with another episode of Parlando Musical Matters with Vivian Schweitzer for Classical Voice North America. Mm